Matthew 24, 36, Jesus said this, But about that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That's how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would, have let his and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. We're continuing our Bible study today through the letter of 2 Peter, and we are going to be looking at the last chapter of the letter today, chapter 3. The second coming of Jesus Christ is the main topic of this final chapter of the letter. So if you've got your Bible, flip over to 2 Peter, chapter 3, and beginning in verse 1, it says, Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. He says, this is now my second letter to you. And we talked a little bit about this before, but we have the first letter of Peter with us today too in our Bible called 1 Peter. So we have 1 Peter and now we are in his second letter, 2 Peter. Peter tells us, that a driving motive for him writing both of these letters was to, for them to be reminders for us to stimulate us to wholesome thinking, he says. So in other words, he hoped that what he was writing in these letters would arouse in us a pure heartfelt desire to grow in our knowledge and understanding of Jesus Christ and push us to be like him. And really, that should be the fundamental motive for all of our Bible study. Whether it's the letters of Peter or one of the other 64 books in our Bible, we want to know Jesus Christ and be more like him. Peter has mentioned before in this letter his deep desire to make sure that we not forget the things that he's taught us after he's gone. You might remember in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, he wrote this, he says, So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. I will make every effort to see that after my departure you will always be able to remember these things. Peter wants to make sure we remember the truths about Jesus Christ, who he is, what he's accomplished for us, what he's still going to accomplish for us, and how he wants us to live our lives. And then here in verse 2, Peter mentions the importance of us remembering two things in particular. First, the words of the prophets of God found in the Scripture, and second, the teachings of Jesus Christ passed on to us through the apostles, which are also found in the scriptures. Taken together, we can consider this being the whole Bible 
as we know it, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Verse 3, above all, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Above all, Peter says. In other words, what Peter is about to tell us is of great importance, never to be forgotten, and of such a weight that it ought to affect the way we live our life. He says scoffers, mockers, critics, doubters, deniers, mocking, criticizing, doubting, denying. Those who don't believe the words of the prophets or the teachings of Jesus Christ. He says, in the last days. Well, what are the last days? Are we in the last days now? Yes. Were they in the last days then? Yes. Here's a simple definition of what is meant by the last days. It's the time between the first coming of Jesus Christ and the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's the last days. Every believer of Jesus Christ who has ever lived over the past 2,000 years has been living in the last days. We'll talk a little bit about uh, that when we get into verse 8 a little bit uh, later in the study this morning. But these scoffers, it says they will come and have come and do come scoffing, saying, where's this coming? He promised the prophecies said that Christ would come again, but it hasn't happened yet. And implied within what the scoffers say about the second coming of Jesus Christ is also a questioning of the truth of the first coming of Jesus Christ. The, the reasoning goes like this. If Jesus has not kept his promise to come back a second time and establish his throne and rule, then why should we believe anything he has said about himself even in his first coming he appears to have been a big fake they argue that everything has continued as it always has from the beginning of human history they say that the uniformity of human history proves that jesus christ is not coming back and by implication that jesus was not the christ not the messiah well their argument would be a decent one, if there had never been any supernatural activity of God in our world. But God has been present and active in our world from the very beginning. And this is what Peter will be talking about in the next verses. These scoffers have a selective memory. In verse 5, but they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. These scoffers, these doubters, mockers, critics deliberately forget. They willfully ignore the fact that the supernatural has penetrated the natural realm before. Now, we're not talking here about some inane ghost story of a supposedly disembodied spirit rattling some chains in the basement of a house. 
we're talking about very God entering our reality and disturbing the natural uniformity of human history. Peter gives a couple of examples of that. And the first is a big one, the creation event itself. He says, God created the heavens and the earth by the power of his word. He said, let there be light, and there was light, and so on in Genesis chapter 1. Second event that he makes reference to is the great flood in the days of Noah. God judged and destroyed the wickedness that filled the earth in those days. Peter is not giving a comprehensive list of supernatural events of God. He's just mentioning two significant events in human history here which help make his point. There have been many times when God has changed the natural course of events in human history. In fact, there have been so many that it requires a person to deliberately forget to hold a position that these scoffers do. A quick side observation about what Peter has said here is in the two examples that Peter gives us, the creation event and the flood of Noah, he mentions water playing a key role in both of them. The earth was formed out of water and by water, he says, and then by these same waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, it says, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then the next verse in Genesis 1 describes the creating of the earth. The, the water in Genesis 1-2, it symbolized the unordered chaos prior to the Lord making his beautiful ordered creation. Humanity then turns the Lord's beautiful ordered creation into chaos. That chaos is described in Genesis 6 Five, this way, it says, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. So the Lord then uses the same water which had symbolized chaos before the creation to destroy the chaos that humanity created, washing that chaos away with the flood event of Noah. Peter, he then brings these ideas around full circle again when in his first letter he uses water again to symbolize the Lord's salvation. In verse 7, he continues, he says, By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So by the same supernatural power that was displayed in the creation and the great flood, God is going to bring judgment and destruction of the wicked. He destroyed the wicked through water the first time. He's going to destroy the wicked by fire the next time, Peter says. Verse 8, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. In these next verses, Peter is identifying four misunderstandings or faults in the thinking of the skeptics and scoffers about the second coming of Christ. And the first one is here in verse 8, which is they don't understand God's relationship to time. And then in verse 9, he'll point out that they don't understand the reason for God delaying the second coming. 
in verse 10, they don't understand how the second coming will occur. And again in verse 10, they won't understand or they don't understand the seriousness of the second coming. So here in verse 8, first the scoffers and skeptics, they don't understand God's relationship to time. They incorrectly assume that God is constrained by time in the same way that we are. God created space and time as dimensions that are the natural realm that we live in. But God exists outside of the dimension of time as he also exists outside of the dimensions of space. When we say God is eternal, we're saying that he's outside of time. Time has no limit on God. There is no beginning or end in eternity. There is only now. God exists. He is. He has always existed and will always exist. He sees all of time all at the same time from beginning to end. If this ruler were time as a dimension, and you're traveling along it as a person living in time, but your perspective as God, you see all of time at once. There's no beginning and end. It's, it's just, it's all there, all of the time. And that's the way God sees time, because he made it. He's not constrained by it. Someone might ask, what was there before God? There is no before in eternity. Moses asked God what his name was when he encountered him at the burning bush in the wilderness, and God answered, I am. Peter explains this idea of God not being constrained by the dimensions of time by saying, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. In mathematics, there's the concept of infinity, which is similar to this concept of eternity. By definition, any number, no matter how large it is, plus infinity still equals infinity. Any number, no matter how large, divided by infinity is by definition zero. Comparing any number to infinity, no matter how large that number is, renders that number as nothing in comparison to infinity. Extending that same idea, one day and a thousand years are both as nothing in comparison to eternity. Well, what does all of that mean for us and how we live our life? It means that the second coming of Jesus Christ is imminent. It could happen at any moment. And it means that the second coming of Jesus Christ has always been imminent and will always be imminent for those in time. Every Christian in every age from the ascension of Christ some 2,000 years ago up to the present day has been able to honestly say that we are living in the last days and Jesus Christ could come at any moment. The coming of Jesus Christ will be very soon. Now on the surface, that might sound like semantics and logic games but it's not. The, the length of time that has occurred since the first coming of Jesus is irrelevant. It doesn't matter how much time has elapsed. That can't be used to determine when Jesus is going to come back or not because God is not constrained by time. 
the second coming of Jesus is very soon. It could happen at any moment. It's important that everyone be ready and live in that way. In verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So the second, scoffers and skeptics don't understand the reason for God delaying the second coming of Jesus. The Lord is not delaying the second coming because of an inability or weakness on his part. The Lord is not delaying the second coming because he's indifferent and uncaring about the human condition and the suffering and the pain that comes along with living in this fallen world. The Lord is being patient with us, hoping that everyone will turn away from their own self-made path and embrace the salvation offered to us in Jesus Christ. It says the Lord doesn't want anyone to perish, to be lost, to not be rescued from the coming judgment and destruction of evil. As it says in Ezekiel 33:11, the Lord does not take pleasure from the death of the wicked. Instead, he wants all of us to turn away from our sin and live. He pleads with us to choose life rather than death. He wants everyone to receive forgiveness and wholeness and have the new life of Christ grow in them. 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. So third, scoffers and skeptics don't understand how the second coming will occur. They incorrectly assume that the second coming of Jesus will be something that they will be able to anticipate and see coming and have an opportunity to prepare for it. In truth, it's going to come suddenly and unexpectedly, we're told, like a thief in the night. 1 Thessalonians 5.1, Paul wrote, Brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Then fourth, Scoffers and skeptics don't understand the seriousness of the second coming. They flippantly ask, Peter says, where is this coming, he promised. And they take comfort in believing that everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But the judgment of God is certainly coming and the present world as we know it will be destroyed, he tells us. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. It isn't going to be party time. It's going to be a terrible, unthinkable destruction. Verse 11. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed is coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. So knowing what's coming, he says, how should we respond? Knowing that the second coming of Jesus Christ is coming soon, how should it affect our lives? And he tells us we should live holy and godly lives. 
holy, dedicated to God, desiring to please Him, godly, be like God in character and moral purity. It says, as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming, we should be looking forward to, hoping for, anticipating, expecting, being ready for the second coming of Jesus. Thinking about, hoping for, looking for, making ourselves ready for the second coming of Jesus. It's something a believer is supposed to do. Not because we want to see the judgment of God come and rain fire down on this world. I can't imagine anyone hoping for that. Instead, we're looking forward to the coming of Jesus because of what is promised to replace this present, broken, damaged, messed up world that we live in. In the next verse, it says here, it says, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. The second coming is not all about judgment and destruction. It is primarily about rescue and redemption and renewal and new life. When you're going to build a brand new beautiful mansion in place of a busted up, broken down, dilapidated old shack, well, you have to tear the shack down first to make room for the new mansion. Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. something to look forward to that the tears will be wiped away the pain taken away all of that replaced with peace and joy new life well, Peter's closing remarks in verse 14 begin this way it says so then dear friends since you are looking forward to this make every effort to be found spotless blameless and at peace with him Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. Peter's repeating some things here that he's already said in his letter. And what does it mean when a person repeats themselves like this? It means that, that he considers the things that he's repeating here to be very important. When you give a set of instructions to someone and there's a couple of those instructions that are very important, you repeat them, don't you? Now remember, turn left. Turn left at the first stop sign. Well, what has Peter repeated here to make special emphasis of two things? That we should be living lives of holiness and godliness 
as we wait for the second coming of Jesus Christ. And second, that we are to see the time until the second coming of Jesus as the Lord lovingly extending his invitation of salvation to people. Every moment the second coming is held off is opportunity for more people to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 16, he writes, Peter's talking about Paul. He, Paul, writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. So Peter makes some passing remarks here about the writings of Paul. He says first that the writings of himself and Paul are consistent with one another. Both of them are teaching the same truths. There's no conflict between their teachings. Peter also acknowledges, though, that there are some things in Paul's writings which are hard to understand. They are not impossible to determine the meaning of, but they do require careful, thoughtful consideration to grasp the meaning. He said some people distort Paul's writings and the other scriptures too, not just Paul's writings, but the other Bible scriptures too, causing themselves and others great harm. That Greek word translated distort, it means to twist, to wrench, to distort, to turn. In this context, it means to distort, misinterpret, get the wrong meaning, change the meaning, confuse the meaning, be confused about the meaning. In some cases, there's a deliberate intent to distort the scriptures as is the case with the false teachers, which we talked about when we looked at chapter 2 of, Paul, of Peter's letter here. In other cases, ignorant and unstable people distort the Scriptures. They don't necessarily have bad motives at heart. They've been perhaps badly taught, or they are not careful students of the Scriptures, correctly handling them. See, good sound Bible study takes work. Scriptures need to be handled with great care so we don't get ourselves off track and misunderstand what's said there. The Bible is not to be read mindlessly like some cheap paperback novel that we picked up off a grocery store shelf. The Bible should not be read like it's some kind of magic charm from which we can simply utter a few random verses and expect supernatural things to start happening in our life. The Bible should be read and studied like it's the most important and precious text we have ever encountered, because it is. Finally, verse 17 and 18, he says, Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. In closing, to, to summarize, Peter says about the skeptics and scoffers that they deliberately overlook, ignore, and forget the supernatural activity of God in the world. They don't understand God's relationship to time, that he exists outside of time and isn't constrained by it like we are. 
making the second coming of Jesus Christ always imminent. They don't understand the reason for God delaying the second coming, that he is hoping that everyone will repent and embrace the salvation offered in Jesus Christ. They don't understand how the second coming will occur, that it will come suddenly and unexpectedly. So we need to always be ready for it. And finally, they don't understand the seriousness of the second coming, that it will mean judgment for the ungodly. Knowing all of that's coming, we should live lives of holiness and godliness, looking forward to the new heaven and earth that the Lord is going to create, all full of his goodness and his glory. Revelation 22.20 says, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Have you received the salvation God offers in Jesus Christ? I can honestly tell you that he has been holding off the second coming for you. That's what Peter says in his letter here. He loves you. He doesn't want you to perish. He wants you to be able to look forward to the second coming rather than dread it. I want to encourage you today to ask Jesus Christ to come into your life, to forgive you of your sin and to give you a new life, and then start following him. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this letter of 2 Peter and the truths that it contains, the reminders that Peter has given us about the things taught to us in the scriptures. And Lord, we know that the second coming of Jesus Christ is coming. It's coming soon. It has always been coming soon. And I pray, God, that it would be something that affects the way we live our life, that we would see our life in that context, that Jesus is coming soon. Lord, we thank you for your promise that a new heaven and a new earth is coming without disease, without death, without violence, without hatred, without injustice, without all of the stuff in this world that makes it awful and unpleasant and heartbreaking and disappointing. Instead, it's all going to be replaced with your joy. What an awesome thing for us to hope in. In Jesus Christ's name we pray today. Amen.